my name's Darren, if I haven't met you yet. We're reading the, uh, from Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 1 to 7 this morning. So if you'd like to take a moment to find that in your Bibles. Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. And page 984, if you're reading it in one of the Bibles from the church. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honour Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Thank you, Darren. Uh, I'm not really much of an art person, but I, I do know what I like, uh, which can be a bit of a mixed bag. So I thought what I'm going to do today is I'm going to show you some paintings, right, or some artwork, and, and I want a quick straw poll. So if you like it, just give me a discreet hand, right? If you don't like it, you can cross your arms and just look slightly concerned. Okay, so let, let's see how we go. I'll, I'll start simple. Okay. Okay, like it, just a little discreet hand. Mm. So, I had not a huge amount of support for the world's most expensive painting. Come on, people. Um, I think anyone who's ever seen it, their first reaction is, this, oh, it's quite small. <laughs> but, uh, okay, here's another one. Okay, that one gets a bit more support. Okay, a little bit more happiness there. But, uh, okay, next one. <laughs> oh, not a lot of support for this one. A few people are in. Yep, apparently 110 million bucks. So, now you like it a bit more now, don't you? <laughs> but, uh, yep, okay, and last one. Yeah, okay, that one gets a bit more support too. Okay, hands, hands down. Uh, let me pray. There is a point, trust me. Uh, let me pray, and then we'll get into this passage. Uh, dear Lord, as we come to your word now, I pray that my words might be faithful to your word, and I pray that we might come humbly, recognising your holiness and goodness and grace. Amen. If I asked anyone, do you want a just and righteous society? It's hard to imagine anyone saying no. You know, perhaps the anarchist association uh, might be a little more ambivalent, but even for them, they want to deconstruct society with the hope of reconstructing society into something better. But the problem is that there's no sense of agreement 
about what right or just actually look like. You know, it's a bit like looking at those paintings. You know, two people can stand and look at exactly the same painting and one person sees a work of of beauty that stirs the soul and another, you know, an abomination to the eyes. You know, so if we can't even get any consensus on what is visually appealing, then what hope is there for us when it comes to something as complicated as what is right and good. And so even in our society right now, one person looks around and they celebrate the values of our culture and they see it as progress, while someone else looks around at the same values and they grieve what society has become. We can't even agree on how to disagree. So we talk a lot about tolerance, but in the words of Inigo Montoya, as you would know from Princess Bride, I do not think this word means what they think it means. And if we're completely divided on what is right and wrong, then what hope is there for this idea of peace on earth? But today, as we read this passage, it says there is such a thing as righteousness and justice, and there is someone who can unite humanity. Uh, Over the last couple of weeks, Isaiah has painted a pretty bleak picture of God's people. So he writes, I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. And God pleads with them to return. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. But they refuse to listen, and even when they suffer as a result of the nations around them, they're so caught up in their own sin, they don't even recognise that what's happening to them is actually God's discipline. And so God presents his case against Judah, and it will be Isaiah's job to declare the verdict. They are guilty. And even though Isaiah will call them to repent, his words will just callous their hearts even more. And so a time is coming when God's justice will devastate Judah to an inch of its life until only a stump remains. But out of that stump will come new life. So from our other reading this morning, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From this root, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. So they will experience God's justice and his judgment, but that won't be the end of the story. And so they're looking forward to a better future. And this future is a person. So they're looking forward to a time when the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. A little bit later, they rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. And then you have shattered the yoke that burdened them. So it's a promise of light and joy and peace. But those images are a long way from their current experience. But a time will come when God will align humanity, where they are, with where God has created them to be. And as we read the book of Isaiah, and even just in our brief look so far, we we get a, a real picture of what it looks like to walk in darkness. You know, they might feel 
that the darkness is the nations around them, which are kind of prowling around like a pack of hyena. But the darkness is actually much closer to home. It's their calloused hearts that are faithless and contemptuous towards God. And that overflows into a contempt for other people and a contempt for justice and compassion. But a time will come when they will see a great light. Now, I do love the language of light. You know, it captures a sense of goodness and untaintedness. You know, one of my uh, simple pleasures in life is, is to head out for a surf. I often go early in the morning. And there's something just really beautiful and pure about sitting out there at the farm on you know, a, a less you know, calmer day and just watching the sunrise. You know, there's just a sense of fresh day, new start, uh, a sense of, of safety. You can sort of see what's happening around you. I'm not sure if that's totally true because of sharks and stuff like that, but certainly you feel safe. Uh, but, you know, you, you've, you can all admit, you know, whether surfing's your thing or not, you, you can just, uh, you get the picture of light, don't you? That light is good. Light brings safety and security. You know, God's people have wallowed in darkness, but God in his mercy will bring them to a place where they recognise his light and they'll see his holiness and his majesty and that light reveals a whole world of beauty. That God's way isn't just right, but God's way is good. And so with that light comes a joy and a rejoicing because it comes from a place of peace where everything is as it should be. And so Isaiah describes this time like the joy that comes with a harvest. And unlike their previous experience for for Judah, uh, no one can take it away. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdened them. So Gideon uh, defeating the Midianites is one of the great Old Testament stories. But if you've missed it, then let me give you the short version. Uh, Israel have entered the land that God has promised, uh, but instead of honouring God, they worship the gods around them. Sound familiar? And once again, God uses the nations around them to judge them. And so God sends the Midianites, and they raided the land every year. So every year for seven years, they'd come in, they'd destroy the crops, they'd you know, d- uh, wipe out or kill their livestock, and they'd be like a, a swarm of locusts. They'd just come in and destroy Everything. And so the Israelites were literally left hiding in caves. And then God raises up Gideon to fight the Midianites, and he sets out with 22,000 men, which is quite impressive. And then God looks at this and goes, That's just way too many. He goes, Send everyone home who's scared. And there were quite a few people who were scared, uh, understandably. And so he's left with 10,000 people. And God looks at it and goes, That's way, way too many. And so, you know, they go and drink it by a brook and he sends everyone who laps it like a dog home. And he ends up with 300 men. And that's kind of the point, that God says, I'm going to use this underwhelming force to do something overwhelming. And so in that initial sort of uh, engagement with the Midianites, they rout the Midianite camp and they literally chase them around the countryside for a whole bunch of time until finally they defeat them. Uh, But it's all about how God saves this tiny force uh, from, you know, this swarming army. And knowing that history, Isaiah declares that God has a plan to once again free Judah from the oppression of the nations around them and to actually bring a lasting peace. But 
things are going to get worse before they get better. So as we get to chapter 9, we know, uh, as you've been reading through the book of Isaiah, that Israel and Aram uh, will not succeed. So they're two northern nations. They will not succeed in overrunning Judah because God will send Assyria. So if if, uh, Israel and Aram are kind of like hyena, then uh, the Assyria is like a lion. And so it's a pretty cool picture, really. Uh, but you, you get the picture. Assyria really were the great force of the day. But in the end, they're not satisfied with simply conquering Israel and Aram, and they start to turn their attention to Judah. And so for a time, the Assyrians will be a heavy yoke to bear. Now, to stay with the you know, animal imagery for the day, uh, a yoke is what you put across the shoulders of, a, of an oxen to control where they're going. And at first, Assyria will control Judah by forcing them to pay a tribute. So basically, they pay a tax for Assyria not to invade. Uh, but in the end, uh, Judah, you know, they kind of look like a tasty deer. And Israel, uh, Assyria do invade and they bring them right to the brink of destruction. Uh, but that won't be the end of it. Because after the Assyrians, as if they weren't bad enough, will come the Babylonians, and they really will conquer Judah, and they will send them into exile. And then after that, in a brief period of restoration, there's the Medes and the Persians, and then we've got the Romans. And so just time and time again, Judah, who are you know, supposed to be God's people, who are supposed to be thriving, who are supposed to be blessed, are just this vassal state under the authority of someone else. So it's a brutal journey. Uh, It's going to be a humbling journey. But again, a time will come where God will bring restoration and peace. Not just a ceasefire peace, you know, kind of a Medes and the Persians peace, but a lasting, genuine peace. And God is going to achieve this all through a son. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time and forever. That's just an amazing picture, isn't it? Uh, If you'd like that amazing picture put to music, uh, Handel's Messiah is really good, uh, if you like classical music. But you get the picture here that God is going to send someone in the line of David. He's promised David that he would put his king on the throne, and that will come true in Jesus. And here we have a king who can truly lead, who has wisdom and power to establish a kingdom where there will be genuine peace. You know, so often uh, we think about peace in terms of prosperity or the absence of war or the absence of personal conflict. You know, it's peacefulness. But real peace, the peace that God is talking about, the peace that Judah need, the peace that we need, is a peace that requires calloused hearts to become soft hearts, where sinful, broken, selfish people see and hear and understand and turn and are healed. 
So God's plan for Judah, God's plan for us, is not to change the world around us to make it more comfortable. God's plan is to change us. And so in Christ, we see those promises fulfilled. He's holy and incorruptible, worthy of glory and honour and power. And he is the one who will rule with justice and righteousness. So in his words, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He's the one who brings light to humanity and he deals with our darkness by standing in our place and paying the price for all that darkness that gushes out of us every day. And with that light comes freedom. Uh, We no longer live in fear of darkness. For Judah, that sin brought Assyria as the rod of God's judgment and a yoke that weighed them down. Uh, But God has freed us from the guilt of sin and the threat of his judgment. And his yoke isn't a burden. It's a guide that leads us to a place of rest. So Matthew records these words, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's a very different picture of yoke, isn't it, Uh, compared to, say, Assyria. So in his mercy, uh, he guides our heart and our mind and our behaviour towards righteousness and away from sin. And he does that through his word, and he does that by his spirit, that guides, that convicts us of not just where we need to go, but actually the will to go there. And so the Spirit brings us to a place where we recognise what it is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and what it looks like to love our neighbour and it shows us the beauty of grace. And with that light comes an expectation that we will be light to others. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, when something is good... It should be self-evident, and that should be true for Christians. People should look at us and see that we are clearly fallible. We obviously make mistakes, but we actually are committed to being different, and that different actually looks good, even when that different grates up against the culture and the values of our society. You know, we say things in a way that's constructive and tank-filling rather than tank-depleting. You know, we don't avoid conflict, but we do desire to be peacemakers. You know, we look for opportunities to be generous. And hopefully as we do all of these things, people see the difference. And if Christ can soften our calloused, sinful hearts, then he can do the same for them. And it should come from a place of rejoicing. Now, not that life is easy, but we see God's goodness and grace even in the hard times, that even in those times, we we don't walk alone uh, when we walk through, you know, pick up the language of Psalm 23, the valleys of the shadow of death. You know, we walk with God's comfort. We walk with God's peace, knowing that despite everything that's going on, uh, that our salvation is secure. And so whatever the present is, we know the future. And then he surrounds us with brothers and sisters in Christ, who also walk with us and share some of that load. 
So right now, God's kingdom is established and there is a genuine peace between us and God if we're willing to accept Jesus as our substitute for our sin and if we're willing to submit to his authority in our life. But there's still an awful lot of brokenness, isn't there? Yeah, we do have God's spirit, but it's so easy to get out of step with that spirit. We know that God doesn't tempt us beyond what we can bear, but we do still find sin incredibly tempting. And there is still so much conflict, you know, global conflict, but also relational conflict, but also personal conflict. You know, we struggle to love ourselves like God loves us. We're anxious about life. We're anxious about relationships. Yeah, we're anxious about being anxious. And that leaves us conflicted. You know, we know we have peace with God, but at the same time, life doesn't always feel that peaceful. And so we're still looking forward to a time where God God will bring his present kingdom and bring it to his perfect completion. But I'm not sure if we hear that always as good news or perhaps we feel... Well, it leaves us, I think, a bit torn because despite all the conflict and anxiety of life, I suspect for many of us we're still anxious about the future and we kind of go look life isn't perfect we know that but we still kind of cling to this life Uh, to go with the the long history of of my car analogies uh, if you've been following my series uh, I feel sometimes uh, we try to hang on to this life as if it's my much maligned uh, four-cylinder automatic beige Tirana now that wasn't my exact car but boy it's getting close And I think sometimes we we cling on to things as if this is the most precious thing that we've got and we don't realise or we don't recognise that God has something infinitely more wonderful waiting for us in the garage. You know, we should love life and we should value life in the present. Uh, This present is part of God's eternal plan for us. But when it's time for this present to end... God has a wonderful future in store for those who love him. So in the words of Revelation, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now amongst the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Our culture believes we can solve the problems of humanity with knowledge and education and science. And certainly they contribute to making life easier. But if things are really going to change uh, for us, for humanity, then we need God to act and we need God to change hearts. And thankfully, God is zealous for his people. He's the one who deals with our sin. He's the one who opens eyes to see. And he's the one who brings peace. Uh, Peace between us and him and ultimately peace between each other. Uh, We experience a little bit of it now. We get a morsel of it now. Even in church, we get to share some of it. But we look forward to an even better future. And so I pray that as we see what God's doing in the present, as we see that future, that that motivates us, that that takes us to a place of joy, 
You know, I'm not the most uh, exuberant, joyful person. I'm not, not the best at expressing joy, and I don't like dancing. Uh, but uh, it's, it's not really about exuberance, is it? It's that heartfelt joy that we have something good and that God is gracious. And so I pray that that is what we know. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we do thank you that you are patient with us. We thank you that you love us. And Lord, as we look at the the history of Judah and we see the seriousness of sin, we also see your grace and we see it even more clearly in your son as he died on the cross for us to pay the price for our sin and to bring us from a place of darkness into your perfect light. And so, Lord, I pray that we know that. I pray that we can see that and I pray that that becomes our, our joy in life uh, and that motivates us to love you even more. Amen.